0: Section One of the Boy Scouts of Woodcraft Camp by Thornton W. Burgess. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Keith Salis. Introduction. The Boy Scout movement has appealed to me from the very first as a long step in the right direction. It stands for an organized boyhood on a worldwide plan. It has in it the essentials for a stronger and better manhood, based on character building and physical development. Clear and clean thinking and self-reliance are its fundamental principles. Its weakness has been and is the difficulty in securing leaders, men with an understanding of and sympathy with, boys who can give the necessary time to active work in the field with the patrols and who are themselves sufficiently versed in the lore of the woods and fields for years before ever the boy scouts were organized i had dreamed of a woodcraft camp for boys a camp which in its appointments and surroundings should make constant appeal to the imagination of red-blooded adventure-loving boys and which should at the same time be a true school of the woods Wherein woodcraft and the ways of nature should be taught along much the same lines as those on which the Boy Scout movement is founded. In this and succeeding volumes, The Boy Scouts on Swift River, The Boy Scouts on Lost Trail, The Boy Scouts in a Trapper's Camp, I have sought to portray the life of such a school camp under Boy Scout rules. The Boy Scouts of Woodcraft Camp has been written with a twofold purpose to stimulate on the part of every one of my boy readers a desire to master for himself the mysteries of nature's great out-of-doors the secrets of field and wood and stream and to show by example what the boy scout's oath means in the development of character many of the incidents in the succeeding pages are drawn from my own experiences and if because of reading this story one more boy is led to the shrine of the hemlock there to inhale the pungent incense from a campfire and to master the art of tossing a flapjack, I shall feel that I have not written in vain. The author. Chapter One: The Tenderfoot. In the semi-darkness of daybreak, a boy of fourteen jumped from a Pullman sleeper and slipped a quarter into the hand of a dusky porter who handed down his luggage. "Are you sure this is Upper Chain?" he inquired. Specs it is, boss, but there ain't no way show. ain't never been up this way afore, replied the porter, yawning sleepily. The boy vainly strove to pierce the night mist which surrounded everything in ghostly gray, hoping to see the conductor or a brakeman, but he could see barely half the length of the next pullman. A warning rumble at the head of a long train admonished him that he must act at once, he must make up his mind to stay or he must climb aboard again and that quickly. A long night ride had been a momentous event to him. He had slept little, partly from the novelty of his first experience in a sleeping car, and partly from the excitement of actually being on his way into the big north woods, the mecca of all his desires and daydreams. Consequently, he had kept a fairly close record of the train's running time, dozing off between stations, but waking instantly whenever the train came to a stop, according to his reckoning he should now be at upper chain he had given the porter strict orders to call him twenty minutes before reaching his destination but to his supreme disgust he had had to perform that service for the darky that worthy had then been sent forward to find the conductor and make sure of their whereabouts unsuccessful he had returned just in time to hand down the lad's duffel now as a preliminary jerk ran down the heavy train the boy once more looked at his watch and made up his mind if the train was on time and he felt sure that it was. This was upper chain, the junction where he was to change for the final stage of his journey. He would stay. The dark, heavy sleepers slowly crept past as the train gathered way till suddenly he found himself staring for a moment at the red and green lights. They grew dim and blinked out in the enveloping fog. He shivered a bit, for the first time realizing how cold it was at this altitude before daybreak. And, to be quite honest, there was just a little feeling of loneliness as he made out the dim black wall of evergreens on one side and the long string of empty freight cars shutting him in on the other. The whistle of the laboring locomotive shrieked out of the darkness ahead, reverberating with an eerie hollowness from mountain to mountain. Involuntarily he shivered again, Then, with a boyish laugh at his momentary loss of nerve, he shouldered his duffel bag and picked up his fishing rod. "'Must be a depot here somewhere. "'And it's up to me to find it,' he said aloud. "'Wonder what I tipped that stupid porter for, anyway. "'Dad would say I'm easy. "'Guess I am, all right. (laughs) "'Who says this is July?' trudging along the ties, he soon came to the end of the string of empties and a little way to his right made out the dim outlines of a building this proved to be the depot a moment later he was in the bare stuffy little waiting room in the middle of which a big stove was radiating a welcome warmth on a bench at one side sat two roughly dressed men who glanced up as the boy entered one was in the prime of vigorous manhood broad of shoulder large of frame he was spare with the leanness of the professional woodsman, who lives up to the rule that takes nothing useless on the trail, and therefore cannot afford to carry superfluous flesh. A gray flannel shirt, falling open at the neck, exposed a throat which, like his face, was roughened and bronzed by the weather. The boy caught the quick glance of the keen blue eyes which, for all their kindly twinkle, bored straight through him. Instinctively he felt that here was one of the very men his imagination had so often pictured, a man skilled in woodcraft, accustomed to meeting danger, clear-headed, resourceful, in fact just such a man as was Deerslayer, whose rifle had so often roused the echoes in these fairy woods. The man beside him was short, thick-set, black-haired, and mare-browed. His skin was swarthy, with just a tinge of color to hint at Indian ancestry among his French forebears. He wore the large check mackinaw of the French-Canadian lumberman. Against the bench beside him rested a double-bladed axe. A pair of bee-black eyes burned their way into the boy's consciousness. They were not good eyes. They seemed to carry a hint of hate and evil, an unspoken threat. The man, taking in the new khaki suit of the boy and the unsoiled case of the fishing rod, grunted contemptuously and spat a mouthful of tobacco juice into the box of sawdust beside the stove. The boy flushed and turned to meet the kindly luminous eyes of the other man. "'If you please. Is this upper chain?' he inquired. "'Sure, son,' was the prompt response. "Reckon we must have come up on the same train. Only I was up forward.' Guess you're bound for Woodcraft Camp. So am I, so let's shake. My name's Jim Everly, Big Jim, they call me, and I'm going in to guide for Dr. Merriam the rest of the summer and try to teach you youngsters a few of the first principles. What might your name be, and where be you're from? Walter Upton, but the boys mostly call me Walt. My home is in New York, replied the boy. Never hit the trail of the big woods afore, did you? inquired the big guide, rising to stretch. No, said Walter, and then added eagerly, but I've read lots and lots of books about them, and I guess I could most find my way along a trail, even if I am a city tenderfoot. I've paddled a canoe some, and I know all about the habits of wild animals and how to build a fire and... Son, interrupted Big Jim, stop right there, forget it. All this rot you've been a-readin', Woodcraft never yet was learned out of books, and it never will be. I reckon you and me are going to hitch up together fine, and when you go back to your daddy this fall, you'll be able to take him out of the tall timbers and show him a few stunts what ain't down in the program of city schools, but what every cottontail born in the north woods learns the second day he gets his eyes open. Now, you just forget all this stuff you've been reading, and stick to me. We'll get along fine. I'll make a woodsman out of you. Your dad will be prouder. Now, let's have a look outside see how the weather is. As he followed the big fellow out onto the platform, Walter felt his cheeks burn at this wholesale condemnation of his treasured books, one of which, a complete guide to woodcraft, was at that moment within easy reach in the top of his duffel bag. Despite his natural admiration for this big guide, to whom the mountains, lakes, and woods were as an open book, and his unbounded delight in having made a good impression, Walter was not yet willing to overthrow his former idols for this new one, and he was independent enough to stand by his opinions until convinced that he was wrong. Have you ever read any of them, Mr. Everley? he inquired courteously. Me? Read them books? Big Jim's laugh rolled out infectiously. What would I read them for, Sonny? I've seen some of them book-writers in the woods and "'That's enough for me. <laughs> "'Lordy!' "'And again Jim's hearty laugh rolled forth. "'Walter laughed a little, too, "'but deep in his heart he resolved "'that he would yet show Big Jim "'that there were some good in the despised books. "'To change the subject he inquired "'about the low-browed owner of the axe by the fire. "'Him? "'Why, that's Red Pete, "'a French Canuck with some Indian in him, "'and the meanest man of the mountains,' "'replied Big Jim.' the mist had begun to burn off even as they watched they saw it roll in great tattered masses up the side of the opposite mountain with the coming of the sun walter was able to take note of his surroundings and his eager eyes drank in the scene so strange to him but so familiar to his companion it was one of those few moments which come to all of us when we experience sensations which so impress themselves upon the memory that never are they forgotten walter felt a thrill that made him tingle from head to foot and from sheer delight clinch his hands till the nails nearly bit into the flesh since he was big enough to read deerslayer and the pathfinder and captain Maine reads fascinating tales of adventure in forest and on the plains he had lived in an imaginary world of his own a wonderful world where he penetrated vast wildernesses voyaged on great rivers and climbed snow-capped mountains now he was really in the great woods his dreams were coming true in a measure indeed it was a scene to stir any red-blooded boy a gentle breeze moving across an unsuspected lake rolled before it great billowing masses of vapor the sun just rising above the eastern hills drew the mist swiftly up the mountain side in broken detached masses that eddied separated came together and in an incredibly short time dissipated in thin clear air till naught remained save the deepest hollows not yet penetrated by the sun's rays. Walter drew a long breath. Oh, he gasped, and again, oh. Big Jim looked at him curiously, while a sincere liking twinkled in his blue eyes. Never see a sunrise in the mountains afore, did you, Sonny? he asked. Just yer wait till you see sun up from the top of old Baldy and watch forty lakes throw off their nightclothes all at once. Sordid enough was the scene now revealed close at hand in the clear morning light, the ulcer of so-called civilization to be seen wherever man has pushed the outposts of commercialism into the great forests. A dozen log houses and a few ugly frame buildings, the latter unpainted for the most part, but with one a glaring red and another a washed-out blue, dotted an irregular clearing on either side of the railroad. Close by, the tail of a log jam choked the narrow river, while the tall iron stack of a sawmill towered above the rough board roof that afforded some protection to the engine and saws. Off to the right glistened the end of a lake, of which the river was an outlet, its margin a mass of stark, drowned timber, a peculiar odor of wet sawdust filled the air a sawdust road threaded its way among the scattered buildings and all about were unsightly piles of slabs heaps of bark and mill waste but to walter was all fascinating the skyscrapers of his native city seemed not half so wonderful as these moss and clay chink cabins he pinched himself to make quite sure he was awake that it was all real an engine and single dingy coach were backing down a siding. "'There's our train, son,' said his companion. "'Better stow your duffel aboard. "'It won't pull out for half an hour, "'and then it'll be twenty-minute run over to Upper Lake. "'I want to see Tim Mulligan over yonder at the store, "'but I'll join you on the train.' Taking the hint, Walter put his duffel aboard the train beside the pack-basket of his friend, and then, to kill time, "'started out to form a closer acquaintance with the town. "'For most of the houses, thin columns of smoke "'and the odor of frying bacon or pork "'proclaimed that breakfast was being prepared. "'Occasionally he had glimpses of weary-faced women "'in faded calico gowns. "'One, standing in the doorway of her cabin, was barefooted. "'A frowzy-headed, dirty-faced little urchin "'stared at him from the shelter of her skirts.' The men he met were for the most part rough, good-natured fellows dressed in the flannel shirt of the woods, their trousers thrust into high-laced, hobnailed boots. Several nodded kindly or exchanged a howdy with a bright-faced boy. On his way back, as he neared a cabin somewhat apart from the others, he heard voices in angry dispute. Turning a corner of the cabin, he was just in time to see a boy of about his own age, but a good head taller, strike a vicious blow at a whimpering hunchback. In a flash, Walter confronted the astonished young ruffian, eyes flashing and fists doubled. "'You coward!' he shouted. "'You miserable coward! "'To strike a boy smaller than yourself! "'And a cripple!' For an instant the others stared, and his face darkened with an ugly scowl, and he advanced threateningly. "'Get out of here! "'This ain't none of your business, you city dude!' he growled. "'I'll make it my business when you hit a little fellow like that!' replied Walter, edging between the bully and his victim. Want her fight? demanded the other. No, I don't, said Walter. But I want you to leave that little chap alone. How uh, yous do, do yous? responded the other, and rushing in he aimed an ugly blow at Walter's face. The fight was on. And just here the young ruffian was treated to the greatest surprise of his bullying career. Instead of crushing his slight antagonist as he had contemptuously expected to do, he lunged in empty space. The next instant he received a stinging blow fairly on the nose. For a moment he gasped from sheer surprise. Then, with a howl of pain and rage, he rushed again. To all appearances, it was a most unequal match. The young backwoodsman was not only taller, but was heavy in proportion. His muscles were hardened by work and rough outdoor life in a sawmill village. And hard knocks had toughened him as well. In contrast, the city boy seemed slight and hopelessly at a disadvantage, but underneath that neat khaki jacket was a well-knit, wiry frame, and muscles developed in the home gymnasium. Moreover, Walter's father believed in teaching a boy to take care of himself, and it was not for nothing that Walter had taken lessons in boxing and wrestling. "'as before he avoided the rush "'by lightly sidestepping, "'driving in a vigorous left to the ear "'and following this with a right "'which raised a lump "'just under the opponent's left eye. "'The latter backed away. "'Then he came in again, "'but more cautiously. "'He was beginning to respect "'this elusive antagonist "'who hit so hard "'yet managed to get away untouched. "'It was all so new in his experience "'that he was utterly at a loss "'to know what to expect. "'Round and round they circled, "'each watching for an opening.' Suddenly Walter took the offensive. He started to rush. He slipped in the wet sawdust. His opponent saw his advantage and swung hard, but Walter caught the blow in his right forearm. And the next instant they were locked in a clinch. This was what the bully wanted. Now he would throw his antagonist, and once he had him down, that would end the battle, for his ethics knew no quarter for a fallen foe. But again he reckoned without his host. Scientific wrestling was an unheard-of art to the young giant while in the home gymnasium Walter had twice won the championship for his weight. For a few minutes they swayed this way and that, then Walter secured the lock he was trying for. There was an instant of straining muscles, then the bully was pinned flat on his back. A big hand fell on Walter's shoulder. "'Son,' said Big Jim, "'I hate to break into your morning exercise, but you and me have an engagement at Upper Lake, and we've got just two minutes to catch that train.' Walter jumped up at once and then held out his hand to the discomfited bully. "'Will you shake?' he asked. To the surprise of the delighted onlookers, the fallen terror of the village arose and in a manly way, though sheepishly, shook the outstretched hand, for at heart he had the right stuff in him. "'You licked me fair and square,' he mumbled. "'I wish you'd show me some of them tricks.' "'I will if I ever have a chance. You ought to be a boy scout.' shouted Walter as he and Big Jim sprinted for the train. End of Section 1